The Veritas Radio Network is guaranteed the right to offend, annoy, agitate, shout heresy, and entertain. You start programming right now. Kind of like the cultural sewage served up on Bravo or CMT, only it's on 24 hours a day. Except Sundays. When the truth gets you angry and you throw your smartphone, remember, no one is forcing you to listen to the truth on the Veritas Radio Network. You can't handle the truth! You're doing that of your own free will. That's what makes this country great, and any gay marriage pointless. That's offensive! So there isn't much you can do about it, Chowderhead. I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Grab a book, take a vow, and conform your mind to reality. Reality. Otherwise, you're just another Judas-inspired Karl Marx wannabe. And your children will steal your credit card number to buy tickets to the Miley Cyrus Twerkers Ball. I came in like a wrecking Are you ready? Let's get it on. On the Veritas Radio Network's Crusade. Welcome to the live Philosophia Penennis classroom and chat room here on the Crusade Channel, King Size Truth from Radio Size Speakers on a Wednesday evening, the 13th of September 2017. I will be your host and moderator, Mike Church, host of the Mike Church Show, which you can hear tomorrow morning from 6 to 10 a.m. right here on the Crusade Channel on our apps, always free in the Google Play and iTunes stores as well. And on the site at crusadechannel.com. If you blouse on over to my website, mikechurch.com, at the top of the page, you'll see Mike Church Show Live, uh, or you'll see the, uh, uh, the tabs, the menu tabs. Click the Catholicism tab, and then click the Philosophia Pudenis option. And uh, scroll down, and you'll see the Philosophia Pudenis Live, um, uh, the homepage. And uh, on that page is where you will find uh, the chat room. Yes, it's a couple of clicks, but well worth the effort. Tonight we will be discussing the lecture given in 1986 or 1987 by Brother Francis Malouf at the St. Augustine Institute then on the works and writings of St. Thomas Aquinas called De Homine, uh, which translated out means about man. And this is lecture number 23 tonight. If you missed any of the previous 22, they are all in the same place where you just found the chat room. And you can also sign up for the RSS podcast feed. So when we play, uh, post 
this episode or any other episode, they all update automatically on the RSS podcast feed. And uh, you can get that with any podcast reader, or you can just go listen to them individually on the website at mikechurch.com. The classroom and the chat room is presented free of charge as a service to our listeners here from the Crusade Channel and the Veritas Radio Network. And we have been at this for uh, almost two and a half years now, uh, beginning with our course in Philosophia Perennis, which is available at the same place that the Dahomey course is available from, and that is at Brother Andre Marie's Catholicism.org website. So uh, let us go to the St. Benedict Center, where Brother Andre Marie is in Richmond, New Hampshire, and bring Brother Andre in and say hello and welcome to Dahomey number 23. Brother, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Mike? I am well. And it's uh, been unseasonably cool for uh, the middle of September down here in southeast Louisiana. You're a native, as am I. We're not used to uh, being in the low to mid-80s during the middle of a September day, so it's actually been quite quite enjoyable the last couple of days. Of course, you know and I know that's going to end any second now. <laughs> it's going to get back into the low 90s until October. Uh, but we've been enjoying the weather and uh, are glad to be here tonight and uh, glad to get some discussion going on Dehomene number 23. Um, this is kind of a peculiar lecture, though. Uh, Brother only did, because he said it was oppressively hot that night they recorded it. He said it twice, so he must have been sweating underneath the cassock. Yeah, yeah, he probably was. It was he he wasn't one to to, to complain about the weather either. <laughs> <laughs> but he said twice it was oppressively hot. I think tonight I'm going only going to give you one paragraph of Saint Thomas on such a oppressively hot night. Uh, one paragraph is probably enough. So um, it was a good paragraph, and we also he also got into a discussion, uh, a reading from Saint Robert Bellarmine about uh, or uh, his uh, take or his thoughts on Psalm number 67. So all that's kind of in the mix here for Dehomene 24. Where would you like to begin tonight? Well, I, I thought what I'd like to do is um, back us up a little bit and, and talk about um, what it is, well, where we are and, and kind of how we got there. Okay. okay. Talking about Dehomene, Brother Francis begins with uh, man's natural capacities. So he's talking about, you know, the, the the makeup of our of our natural human edifice. You know what what we are, composite beings of body and soul, and he ta- we talk about the twenty six powers of human nature, uh, the the lowest of which we have in common with uh, with with rocks and so forth, and then we have. Um, the powers of all living beings, all all uh, animal, all plant life, then all sentient life, that is to say all animal life, and then above that we have the two highest human faculties of intellect and will. And after spending some time talking about those natural capacities and what the, uh, the, their potencies are and, and how they can be actuated, he talks about a lot of uh, supernatural realities. And I think what I'd like to do is sort of Take us take taking my cue is one thing that brother said in this lecture. One thing that he repeated a couple of times, 
taking it as my cue, I will talk about the whole concept of man's supernatural finality. Because remember, Brother's been talking a lot about happiness and about teleology, that, that the good of man, the purpose of man, is none other than happiness. And that happiness uh, for a man is not going to be satisfied in any other way, ultimately, except in the beatific vision. Okay. This is something that St. Thomas goes at length on in both the Summa Theologiae and the Summa Contra Gentiles. Um, but, but what I'd like to do is talk about how it is that man is directed towards that supernatural end. Okay. Now, the, show, the Reconquest show that I have tonight, a- afterwards, I'm actually taking some of these thoughts uh, and going into them. Uh, from a from a different angle, and I'm asking the question: Is happiness selfish? And I, I'm I'm actually taking something that Gary Potter wrote about Ayn Rand as my starting point, and um, she had a very um, sort of um, um, unsatisfactory explanation of what happiness is. Mm. But what what but I'm asking the question based on what she said that our 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 sole purpose is to find our happiness. Now, her understanding of happiness was obviously that of an atheist and a materialist, uh, so that's not satisfactory. Um, but the 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 uh, purpose of man is to work for his happiness. His finality is to to achieve his happiness. But once you understand what that happiness consists in, then you then you can't possibly conceive it as a selfish thing or as a self-centered thing. And there are several reasons for this. It's true even even in Aristotle, it would be true, even going by his natural criteria for what happiness is. And it's certainly true in the supernatural economy of St. Thomas Aquinas and indeed of, of, of all Catholic um, theology. But what I, what I want to look at right now is how is it that man um, has, uh, has in him this supernatural uh, finality and how that's realized. So in man, in our very nature, there is a supernatural f- finality placed there. Um, every being at its creation is given a purpose. Every being has a purpose. Rocks have purposes. And of course, the, 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 the fundamental purpose of all creation is to give glory to God. But rocks have a purpose, and they even have a good, uh, and they're directed towards that good, even by gravity, right? They fall down. So they're being true to their purpose by being true to their nature. In the, in the metaphysical nature of every being, there is stamped therein a purpose. So this is true of artifacts. This is true of plant life. This is true, and, and, and okay, let's stop at plants. Something about their own finality, their own purpose, is built into their actions. So they 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 grow, they they reproduce, they um, they uh, assimilate, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And they're even directed towards their good when the roots go out towards the water, and when the leaves, you know, the branches and so forth can even bend and so forth to get better sunlight. So there is something there is something in their very temporal finality. 
built into their nature that makes them do those things. Now, they're not doing this uh, with any knowledge. They're not doing this with any act of of will because they don't have a will. It's simply built into their nature, and as long as they're being true to their nature, they're achieving their purpose. Uh, Animals as well, they're achieving their purpose by being true to their nature. In man, there is placed a supernatural finality, which is there by virtue of our being created initially in the image and likeness of God. And we have an intellect, and, and, and by virtue of the intellect in us, we have a desire to know. Now, St. Thomas, and actually all Catholic theologians, all, all scholastics anyway, were, were uh, convicted with the notion that in man is built a supernatural finality, and they called this man's natural desire for God. How exactly that natural desire uh, is constituted specifically uh, is a subject of argumentation from different theological schools. But the fact is they all agree that in man there was built a natural desire for God. Now, that natural desire is not sufficient uh, on its own to uh, achieve this end. But along with that natural desire, we have a knowledge built into our nature of the primary principles of the natural law, the most primary which, the fundamental of which, is do good, do good and avoid evil, right? Right. That's the prime directive, as it were, of the natural law. And yet... We, we have the capacity by our intellect to realize that there is a God, and we have an obligation to learn about him and to know him. And our intellect is not satisfied until we see our first cause as he is and know him. Now, we have an end, and this is straight out of St. Thomas. Man has a, an end by nature, which he cannot achieve by nature. And to achieve that end, he needs grace. Now, this sounds like it's full of ironies, and it, and it actually is. There are ironies sort of built into it. But by nature, man is created for a supernatural finality. The, the strange thing is that finality is above his nature. So how can he achieve it? Only by grace. So now what I'd like to do is... Law, uh, now... Brother Francis says in this particular lecture that man has, uh, uh, is made a partaker of the divine nature. He's quoting St. Thomas say that we, saying that we have to be a participant in the divine nature really to know God and supernaturally because such knowledge is above us, okay? It is above us. Okay. In order to have that knowledge, we have to have infused in us faith, which Brother Francis spent, you might remember, he spent a couple of minutes talking about faith, that faith helps us think the thoughts of God, which shows you a tremendous amount of uh, dignity that God allows to our poor human nature, that we can think his thoughts, okay, something beyond our natural capacities. To know the Trinity, to even know in this life the Trinity is beyond our natural capacities. Now, Man is directed to his end, according to St. Thomas, by law. I wrote something on this today for our website, and it has very much to do with my own preparations for my conference talk. Okay. But it fits perfectly into this subject. But the Francis never got into this in these lectures. But it ties in, and it's all straight up and down to mystic. 
St. Thomas says that for man to be directed to an end is the purpose of law. So civil law in a civil society directs man to his proper end strictly in this temporal sphere. Now, man's ultimate end is beyond the temporal sphere. We know that. But in order to uh, allow him to achieve some temporal good and in the common good of society, there must be law. And that's the purpose for, for law. It's to direct man towards his end in temporal society and to, and what is his end? The good. But man is not alone, okay? man. It's not just this man, that man, and the other man. It's a social grouping of man that we have in civil society. And therefore, the good being worked at by law is not simply the good of the individual, but the common good, which that phrase, common good, which is very abused today by, by, by progressivist Catholics, but it is a very perfectly fine and perfectly laudable and, and useful um, sort of consecrated phrase in the lexicon of Catholic philosophy and theology. The common good is what is achieved by civil law. And of course, any law, and, and St. Thomas gives a very impressive definition to law. It's got four notes. For something to be a law, it has to be an ordinance of reason for the common good by him who has authority in the community and promulgated. If it lacks any of those four notes, it is not a law. So in my, in my um, thing that I wrote today, the odd rem that I sent out today, uh, I said Roe v. Wade is not a law. Even though, now, of course, in, in American jurisprudence, we have two different sources of law. We have court cases and we have statutory law. So don't tell me, well, it's not a law, it's a court case. Court cases are, are law. I mean, they give us our, it's one source of law. So Roe v. Wade would be a law if it were a just court case, but it's not a law because it's not an ordinance of reason. It's utter, utterly unreasonable and it's not for the common good. It militates against the common good or a variety of other so-called laws which violate the common good. I mean, I would actually argue that some of the tax, much of the tax code is, is contrary to the common good. But, I mean, we can take something less controversial, and I don't think they'll be controversial here, but we can take something less controversial <laughs> than that and think in terms of, uh, of, of any law that allows a human to be harmed for no sufficient reason. That would not be a just law. So law, laws that came out under, say, uh, uh, the tyrannical regimes of Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia um, that harmed humanity were not for the common good and therefore were not laws. So those four notes are necessary in, in any human law. And by the way, human law is divided in, in civil law and ecclesiastical law, too. So what we call canon law in the church and any ecclesiastical law, it's not divine law. That, does, that doesn't come from God. That's a human law. But Saint, in St. Thomas's division of law, we have, before we ever get to human law, which he kind of puts in the last place, we have the eternal law, we have the natural law, and we have the divine law. And the divine law is divided two ways, the old law and the new law. And of course, the old law is the Mosaic law, corresponding to the times of the Old Testament, and the new law is the new law of Christ, corresponding to the to, from from the, the the preaching of Christ on to now, and we live in the time of the new law. And 
the uh, old law was a preparation for the new law because it prepared us for grace. It prepared us for the full revelation of Christ and of the Holy Ghost and the new law. But get this, because we have a supernatural finality, which we can't achieve by nature, we have to have a law to guide us there. And what St. Thomas says about the new law of Christ, that is to say, the the New Testament, the new, the new, the the the, revela- the revelation of the New Testament, is that this new law is primarily the internal grace of the Holy Ghost, and only secondarily is it a written law. And as a written law, it is it is summarized in the Sermon on the Mount, which tells us how to live as children of God. Now, Brother Francis made a big deal about in this lecture about how if we didn't know, if we didn't have the benefit of faith, we wouldn't even think of being children of God. We would think of being God's creatures, but we wouldn't think about being adopted into a nature that is above us and therefore, you know, perfected with uh, these supernatural gifts. Yet, this is what St. Peter says in, his, in one of his canonical epistles, where he says that God has given us uh, most perfect gifts, whereby we are made uh, partakers of the divine nature. And of course, in the Our Father, we pray a prayer where we call the first person of the Holy Trinity, Father, in common with Christ. Uh, I mean, we can only call him Father because we are united to Christ. That's, that's the... That's the right that we have to call God Father. But if it weren't for that, we wouldn't have the right to call God Father. We, we would have to call him our creator. But because we've been supernaturally adopted and are children of God, we have the right to call him Father. Now, in order for us to, to live in that way, we are given the internal grace of the Holy Ghost primarily. And with that, we have that full supernatural panoply of grace that makes us children of God. We have, in addition to the moral virtues, which can operate purely naturally, we have the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. We have the gifts of the Holy Ghost. And then that allows us to operate with the acts that are called the fruits of the Holy Ghost and those other acts that are even higher that are called the Beatitudes that are a pledge in this life of happiness. In fact, we can in this life even have happiness by virtue of the Beatitudes. Right. But but that Beatitude isn't fully realized until heaven. So for St. For Saint Thomas, the written law, though, is secondary. The primary law, the primary aspect of the new, of the new law, rather, is the internal grace of the Holy Ghost. And having that... We are renewed interiorly, and there's a true inner change, and we have a, a, a new nature added on to us. Now, this is in stark contrast to what the Protestant reformers believed. This is in stark contrast to what Luther believed in Calvin, because for them, they didn't believe that there was an interior renovation of the old man, and he's made truly a new man. They believed, or Luther anyway, believed in what was called fidu- uh, um a forensic justification. Forensic? forensic? Forensic justification being you're just covered over. And, of course, the image that Luther used was of the, the dung heap that's covered over with snow. So that when God looks at us, 
he doesn't see the sin. He just sort of ignores it, and he sees Christ. We're covered with the merits of Christ, sort of like, you know, um, uh, Jacob covered himself in the skins so that he would appear as Esau. No, that's merely external. God interiorly renovates us with the internal grace of the Holy Ghost. So St. Thomas very profoundly uses St. Paul, where St. Paul says that the old law cannot justify. St. Paul has this beautiful meditation on the Old Testament, and he says that it cannot justify, it cannot sanctify, it can't make us holy. The Mosaic law couldn't make us holy. It could point us towards heavenly realities, but it couldn't make us holy. And he said, but he said that the, but St. Paul says that the new law makes us holy. And St. Thomas said the reason that the new law makes us holy is because it's not primarily a written guide. It's mm. not primarily a written law. It is primarily the internal uh, grace of the Holy Ghost. So he insists on this. So it might sound weird to people to hear that the new law of Christ is primarily not a written law. It's primarily not the Bible. It's primarily the internal grace of the Holy Spirit renewing us inwardly and making us children of God making us, as St. Paul says, cry, Abba, Father. That's the Holy Ghost at work in us. Now, in order for us to live that way, we have to have a guide. We have to have a, a written law as well, and therefore we have it in the Gospel. We have it in the New Testament. We have it especially summarized, as St. Thomas himself says, in the Sermon on the Mount, where we get, among other things, the Beatitudes, which show us the highest perfection of the Christian life. So, in this way, we see what St. Thomas says, even about civil law, that the purpose of law is to direct man to his end. This is true about the supernatural law, about the supernaturally revealed law. Its purpose is to guide us in our end, to our end. And this puts us in mind of Psalm 25, where King David says, The Lord is sweet and righteous, therefore he hath given a law to sinners in the way. We, we Occidental men, we modern Occidental men, tend to think of law in, according to the, to the sort of post-Enlightenment legal positivism, which is part of the atmosphere that we're swimming in. Mm -hmm. And for us, all law is something that, that's been given by, you know, the, these guys in Washington, D.C. that we call lawmakers, huh? All law, there are other law, names. law comes from the government. There are other names for that. Dictated from on high by the government. But for us, even on that stuff, if if those statutes and those court decisions don't conform to, to, to God's law, in other words, if they contradict it, they're not law. They're technically and truly not law. They might be called law by guys that wear funny robes and have gavels, but they're not law. They just aren't. And this is pretty darn radical. I mean, you know, I think in the right circumstances or wrong circumstances, however you look at it, <laughs> uh, somebody could be thrown in prison for, <laughs> for, for saying this kind of stuff in a court of law because you don't regard, you don't regard this person have any true, having any true authority if he's acting outside of the, the real law, even though he's acting in conformity to what he thinks is law like something, some abomination like Obergfell or, or Roe v. Wade or any of these things. So, I don't know, do we want to digest that a bit, Mike? 
Well, I think that that's a, uh, I don't see any questions. Uh, well, uh, uh, Occidental Men Love Positivism, uh, positives, Positivism Code versus Law? Question mark. Josh Will, I don't see any other questions. Um, I think that you can unpack that a bit, but let's, uh, let's uh, tell folks what's coming on after uh, Dahomene tonight, episode number 94 of Reconquest. Now, are you a solo act tonight? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's actually episode ninety three. Ninety three. I was. Um, it's called "Is Happiness Selfish?" See, uh, 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 wishful thinking. I said ninety four, not ninety three. Um, let me also remind uh, those of you that are listening, and those of you that will listen in uh, tape delay, that uh, the St. Benedict Center Conference is first weekend in October, and if you'd like to come out and see me speak on the Saturday morning. Uh, brother will be on Saturday afternoon. There's a great uh, calendar of speakers all day Friday as well. And fantastic fellowship and even pretty good food under the big white tent. Uh, That's true. It is. Uh, then you're not going to want to miss the St. Benedict Conference. And uh, I'll just give you uh, this little tip here. And that is if you want to see what life may have been like in a village in Christendom, uh, with running water and electricity, then you need to come to the St. Benedict Center. Because <laughs> <laughs> you'll see it in Richmond, New Hampshire, and you'll be very impressed, very relaxed, and uh, your soul will certainly thank you and will be, will be the benefactor, or the, we'll, we'll, we'll receive great benefits and graces from it. So you can register at Catholicism.org on uh, Brother's website. That's Catholicism.org. And it's a two-day conference. You don't have to come to both days. Uh, some people came to one day last year. Some some came to Friday. Some came to Saturday. But you can come to both days, and all the details are there on the site. Again, that is the first weekend in October. I believe that's the, October the 5th and the 6th, right? Uh, I, I think it's 6 and 7. 6 and 7. It's, it's, it's actually 6 and 7. Okay, so 6 and 7. Uh, a great uh, time to be in, in New Hampshire. It's a beautiful weather. Uh, we may be fortunate, and uh, the foliage may be in full bloom. May, may not. Uh, but it's a great time of year, and it's a great conference, the St. Benedict Center Conference, the annual conference. And uh, you're all invited to attend. Get your tickets now. Make your travel arrangements. And uh, Brother and I hope to see you there. Hey, thanks for the plug, Mike. Absolutely. Well, you know, uh, I, I fully intend to collect my uh, my 0, 0.0 commission at the end of this thing, so <laughs> you got it. Man. I want you to add a zero to my pay. <laughs> I want to collect zero point zero zero at the end of this. I'm kidding, uh, brother. I listened to this lecture twice by accident because it ends kind of abruptly. The tape ends kind of abruptly. It so does. I, it does. So, I don't know what happened. Yeah. There. So I thought, well, that's odd. I must admit, I did my Dropbox player must have messed up. So I hit play again, and so I got the benefit of listening to it again. And it's another one of these uh, lectures where Brother uh, Francis makes the point that if you don't know where you're going, well, then how can you get there? And he theorizes, and I think, uh, boy, if he were alive today, he wouldn't even it wouldn't even be a question mark in this. Most men today don't know where they're going. No, he'd say, all the men today do not know where they're going. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't know where you're going, you how can you get there? And how would you know where, that you got there if you don't know where it is you're going? It's a really simple yet beautiful question. Where are you going? And, of course, he points out that we as believers and as the faithful, 
Well, we're going to heaven, or we're trying to, and uh, here are some of the things that we need to do to try to get there. I also thought that some of the um, some of the way he fleshed out the uh, the arguments or the um, or the positive aspects of the faith that you could learn the entire faith, almost the entire faith. You, you could do almost an entire course in catechism just by reading the Psalms. And then he pointed out that you know that they were written by the greatest poet ever, uh, the Holy Ghost. And that for uh, eras or eons, he's, you know, he talked about eras. That that was what the Jewish people read. I mean, that was uh, the, one of the most prized and cherished works that they read, and they still read them today. We read them today. We venerate them today. All of us do. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I, I uh, seven times a day I pray the Divine Office, and uh, some of them. Some of them, uh, some of the offices, the brothers chant in common, but others are just private. But uh, it's all psalms. I mean, the the vast majority of it, beginning with matins, which is nine psalms. And um, I mean, by the by the end of the day, the it's crazy that I've never done the math, but it's uh, it's like twenty something psalms that have been prayed by the end of the day. If you just go by the normal cycle of the divine office, so the church has this. Very psalm-minded. It is. But she doesn't just have us pray pray the psalms as complete psalms. She also uses little fragments of the psalms in different liturgical settings and helps us to, to focus. Um, there's not one—talk about sanctifying human nature. Right. There's not one emotion that's proper to man that's not somehow expressed in a psalm. In the Psalms, yeah, that, we have we have love and we have all the concupiscible passions, yep. and all the irascible passions expressed in in the Psalms, and very dramatically and very powerfully. And uh, now, we, now, brother is is always reminding us that we should uh, always try and put some Latin into what it is that we're reading and studying. Uh, to learn the sacred language. So, brother, uh, I actually have a little bit of a devotion to, to Psalm 67, so if you don't mind, I'd like to give you the first verse, verse in Latin because I have it memorized. Maybe that could be our Latin lesson tonight. All right, go, go right Maybe ahead, you Mike, can correct me. my pronunciation since Sister Philomena's not here to do it. Okay. Because <laughs> every time I call her and I quote something, he goes, yeah, Mike, that was pretty close, but no. Exorgat <laughs> <laughs> uh, Deus. Right? Um, Exorget uh, ex, 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 or exorgat? Okay. Uh, I was confused as a hard G or a soft, uh, a soft G. Is it, is it followed by an A or an E? Uh, a. Oh, then, then it's exorgat. Okay. Exor God arises. Yeah. Okay. okay. Exorgat Deus et decipentor inimici eus. How am I doing? Great. Exor God Deus et Decipentor in Amici Eus et Fugiant. God arises and his enemies scatter. Yes. Et Fugiant qui oderunt eum. Um, and, and those, and, yeah, and, and those who hate him flee. Afakia Eus. Afacie. Facie. See, I knew face. I'd blow it. Afacie Eus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's, yeah, a, that's so, the first, yeah. first verse of it, Psalm 67. 
Yeah, it's a great, it's a great, I know somebody who wanted to take that psalm verse and stick it on a t-shirt with the holy face from the Shroud of Turin on it. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's a great little prayer that you can say, you know, a hundred times a day if you're looking, uh, if you're looking for something to, to repeat to yourself. And, and you know, the, the monks of old used to do that stuff. They would take a psalm verse and, and just repeat it over and over again. It would be, it would be sort of their, their meditation for that day. Yeah, uh, well, I do it often, and I, I really enjoy learning them. Uh, you know, the one that I know the most, of course, is Psalm 69, um, which is, um, now I'm going to forget it. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, gosh, I put myself on the spot. Anyways, we'll stick with Psalm 67 since Brother was talking about it. Then he goes on to read it, and, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he offers a little meditation on that. And uh, that's the remainder of the part of uh, this Dahomey lecture that um, that uh, that ends kind of abruptly. I'm not sure how much we missed. Maybe the weather just got so hot that the tape recorder overheated. Yeah, I honestly don't know what happened. Uh, uh, you know, nobody took notes, like logged it as as a diary, like of how, <laughs> what was going on when these these classes were given. Uh, but. Um, the 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 um, get, let's so let's get back into the to this whole thing about sure. about law and purpose and 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 grace. When when we say that the primary uh, aspect of the of the new law is that it's the internal grace of the Holy Ghost, there's an awful lot that that implies. That implies that the supernatural edifice that's super added onto man is that which makes him realize his supernatural finality. So in other words, the fact that he has the theological virtues which perfect his highest faculties, it perfects his highest faculties because it gives his intellect the ability not just to know truth, but to know supernaturally revealed truth. It gives his will mm -hmm. the capacity to hope in a higher end to hope in grasping, reaching heaven, and even to hope for the helps that are available from God in this life by way of actual graces. And it gives also to the, to the will, very importantly, the ability to love God, not just as a creature would love its creator, which man, by the way, would naturally speaking owe God a debt of love. But supernaturally now, man can love God intimately man can love god as his father and supernaturally there is an indwelling uh, of the trinity in souls that we have by way of by way of uh, sanctifying grace and by way of the theological virtues and as i was explaining to my high school students today according to saint thomas the um, presence you know we can talk about god being present everywhere right we could talk about his omnipresence but God is present in man by a different formality. Even naturally speaking, God is said to be more present in man because of the presence of the, of the rational intellect and will. But over and above that, supernaturally speaking, in the souls that are, that are elevated into grace, God is present, and this is the way St. Thomas expresses it, as the known in the knower and the loved in the lover. Mm. So as the thing known is present in the knowing mind, and as the thing, the object of our love is present in our mind, in that way, God is present in us. It's a special presence that's, that's not natural to us. It's supernatural to have God present in that way. 
So we have the theological virtues. We have uh, the gifts of the Holy Ghost, which perfect the operations of those virtues. We have sanctifying grace, which perfects the soul itself and elevates it and make, gives us a new birth as children of God. All uh, Now, but in addition to that, we're we're not just op, we're not just elevated into the, into divine sonship by grace and given the potency to act by the supernatural virtues. Even our natural acts can be perfected so that everything we do is in relation to that divine sonship. So we're still citizens of this earth, and we still have to do things. We still have to eat and sleep, and we still have to work for our living, and we still have to to um, to deal with other people. So for that reason, in order to do so as children of God, we have not only the natural uh, virtues of prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude, but we have supernaturally infused versions of them in us, too. So prudence is given a supernatural dimension. Justice is given a supernatural dimension. And so is temperance, and so is fortitude. These are all given a supernatural orientation, not that they are directed towards God, but this is what St. Thomas says, by the, by the moral virtues that are infused in us uh, at baptism, we are directed towards creatures in accordance with the will of God. So the theological virtues are called theological because they direct us to God, theos in Greek, right? But the, the, the moral virtues are directed towards our, our, our dealings with creatures. But because we're children of God, we have to deal with creatures in, in, a, in a way that conforms to God's law. Mm-hmm. Not just the moral law, but even the supernatural law. Right. We have to act like God's children act. And for that, we have as our example Christ— and for the actual carrying out of acts of, of virtue uh, that are directed towards the proper use of creatures, we have to have those four, those four virtues, those four um, um, cardinal virtues, and all the virtues that sort of belong to them as parts. So, for instance, the martyrs, well, what are they perfect examples of? Well, after the love of God, we think of martyrs as being perfect examples of fortitude, and how is it that that puts you in, in relation to your to creatures? Well, because you have to deal with the creature called pain, right? You have to deal with a, a, somebody who could be torturing you and so forth. You have to make moral decisions based upon relationships to creatures. Temperance, it keeps, us, it keeps our appetites in check. It keeps our, our concupiscence in check. It also keeps our pride in check, according to St. Thomas, because he has humility being um, a part of, of temperance. So is that making sense, Mike? Yes, yes. All, yeah, all of these things are directed supernaturally, not because the moral virtues are directed towards God as their final end. They're directed towards creatures, but they're directed towards creatures in such a way that they don't obstruct our achieving of our final end. And moreover, they're, they're directed towards uh, creatures in such a way that we can actually merit in, and increase the, the, the reward that we get in our supernatural end. So by heroic acts of fortitude or prudence or temperance or justice, uh, the saints can g- gain higher places in heaven. All of that is what comes to us. When we talk about the, 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 the uh, new law of Christ 
being primarily the internal grace of the Holy Ghost. It includes all of that stuff. Mm. And that's what that's what directs us to our to our last end. And we see in this arrangement a very noble elevation even of our natural capacities. And this is why the saints were heroically kind and heroically gentle and heroically forbearing and long-suffering and patient with their fellow men because because in the practice of those virtues they were behaving themselves and comporting themselves as children of God. Not just putting up with these people because they were necessary evils. <laughs> yes. So, and then, uh, and we're uh, just a quick reset here. You're listening to Philosophia Podenis, the live classroom and chat room here on the Crusade Channel. King Size Truth from Radio Size Speakers. And uh, we are discussing the lecture from Brother Francis Malouf uh, titled uh, De Homine, lecture number 24. And uh, if you'd like to download the Dahomene series and take it for yourself, then uh, go to Catholicism.org and search for it. And then make sure you send Brother Andre Marie a uh, quick note and inform him that uh, you'd like the Crusade Channel discount, and he'll give you the coupon code for it. And, of course, you uh, are free to, and I strongly encourage you to explore all of the Velocifia Perennis selections, including the entire eight-part course, which begins with logic and ends with ontology uh, that Brother Francis gave, that uh, almost everyone, just looking at the room, Brother, it looks like almost everyone in the room has taken that course. Um, and you will benefit as a, uh, as a man, as a woman, as a child of God, and certainly as a Christian, more than you can ever know. Um, People like to tell me, brother, that after many people took the uh, Dahomey course, or even just listened to me and David talk about it on Wisdom Wednesdays on the old show in the old country, they would send tweets out on Twitter and they would uh, tag me with the hashtag hashtag Life Ruined. You're kidding. Not not life ruined in a bad way. Life ruined that they now saw all the errors of modernity. Oh, okay. And they saw so right. little that it was. was good, it's, it was it, a good kind of ruination. Yeah, it almost causes despair because you see so little that is correct. Yeah, yeah. and so much. Well, it's not supposed to make give us despair. It's it's uh, but but it can be it can be. Um, you know, there's an episode. It reminds me of an episode in the in the history of Israel. When they built the second temple, okay. um, one of our one of our esteemed classmates here, uh, Mr. Silverman, will probably recall the episode. But when they built the second temple, um, there were people alive who had seen the first temple before it was destroyed. But most of the Israelites who were there at the building of the second temple had never seen it. And the thing is, the second temple looked um, glorious to those who had never seen the first one, but it didn't compare in beauty to the first one. So the older people who were there, is, and, and so when the temple is sort of unveiled in this dramatic presentation, when the temple is shown to the people, there is, there is this loud cry that comes up from the crowd. Some of them are weeping and some of them are cheering. The old ones who saw the old temple were weeping and the young ones are seeing uh, th this temple for the first time and they're cheering. So uh, th that's kind of the reaction, the, the <laughs> mixed reaction. There was another time when the Israelites had the, when they had been unfaithful to the law, 
when one of the prophets stood up and read the entire law of Moses to them. And at the end of it, they wept because they didn't realize how difficult it was and they had never been taught how to observe it. So I think that later one, that's the mood that, that these people find themselves in. It's, it's as if to say, you mean there's more to life than this stuff? You mean wow. we've been taught wrong? You mean we've been ripped off? <laughs> I want my money back. Yeah. I, yeah. Wanna... I mean, I'll trade in my Mercedes for like, you know, grace or something. <laughs> but pe people have been ripped off and in, and in more than one way. I mean, they've been sold a cheap bill of goods. Uh, because we've been told that all kinds of all kinds of silly things don't um, all kinds of silly things will help us to find our happiness, and this is one reason you saw so many priestly and religious vocations leave during the '60s because they had all these this fake gospel that they'd made up, and people were people were like, oh man, God wants us to be happy, so so what? So so you just follow your concupiscence. That that explains why there was that mass exodus of priests and religious during the during the uh, late sixties, early seventies, when everything got sort of naturalized in the faith. Well, and then it it all kind of kind of goes back to then uh, to brother a uh, brother to uh, part of our philosophy of Prodenish training, and that you know when we explore the term happiness. And then when a brother leads us to explore it and to meditate upon it, and then to try and discover from whence it comes, and, uh, you know, the, the secularist, uh, I guess they have accidents from time to time, but they actually get it right. Money can't buy me love. Money can't buy me happiness. Well, that's actually correct, uh, because it happiness is, yeah. is not to be found in uh, material things. And in the material order, this is pure, straight-up Marxism. And Marx would be so proud of someone that would think that they're happy because they got a 2,700-square-foot house, an improvement over their 1,800-square-foot house. Now, yeah. and, now and, and, and there's really not a significant difference between what the Marxists and the capitalists believe on this score. No, there isn't. And, and I'll tell you something else. Uh, last week, uh, you, you, you slid a little uh, uh, Gary Potter in and Ayn Rand, and I'm glad that you did. Uh, because this has been popping up now. Maybe I'm just noticing it, but there are articles now that are being written. People are very alarmed by the monopolies that are forming out on the peninsula of the, uh, in between the Pacific Ocean and San Francisco Bay in Silicon Valley. And they're very alarmed at these monopolies. Uh, but, you know, they're told, though, by certain individuals, don't worry, these guys are all good libertarian capitalists. They've all studied their Ayn Rand. They're not going to form a collective and, and, and come kill you or come take all your stuff. You know, they, uh, they're all good Randians. But as Gary points out, and as you pointed out last week, last week, Ayn Rand was a very messed up individual, and her philosophy is totally crocked. You shouldn't follow it. And you shouldn't yeah, be and assured. you should be afraid of somebody who, who thinks... His own personal happiness is, is his greatest purpose in life because he's not altruistic. Ayn Rand actually explicitly rules out altruism. So you don't get Christian charity because the woman wasn't a Christian. And even if you have somebody like Paul Ryan who, uh, you know, begged off of the Iron Rand stuff a little bit when, when, when it was evident that this was contrary to what, uh, you know, sort of 
Bible Belt conservatives would like to hear from right, him. Right. But still, the man gave one of Rand's books to all of his staffers, so he obviously has some devotion to, to her. The, 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 we're swimming in this atmosphere, and among so-called, as you say, conservatives, we're swimming in this atmosphere of selfishness. And look, how different is Ayn Rand, aside from her explicit atheism, how different is she from the rugged individualism of the Protestants? When you consider the fact that the Protestant Revolution, one of the things that did, I heard your talk with Andrew Bizad this morning. Yes. Uh, and that guy's brilliant. He is. But what he was saying about what the Protestant Revolt did um, in, in, in uh, relation to making every man his own pope, it's, it's true. And it also completely destroyed the communitarian notion of Christendom that was common. You know, Hillary Clinton foolishly says it takes a village. Well, she means it in like a socialist sort of communist way. But it really does take a village to have a Christian society. It really does take a village. Why? Because the purpose of man coming together is to live a virtuous life, to give glory to God. We come together in a society so as to live virtuously and give glory to God. And you, you, you can't, as a libertarian or as a Randian, you couldn't possibly think that that's insanity. Because that would demand imposing my worldview on you, and that's one thing I can't do. I have to. If that makes me happy, fine. But I can't. I can't impose it on you. And now, a, a, a Christian society would would see that man had. There's a, as you constantly point out, there is a solidarity. It has to bring out that solidarity. Ayn Rand is not at all into solidarity. She's into Ayn Rand. Yeah, and when we say solidarity. What we basically mean, even President Obama, when he was running for president the first time, uh, again, broken clocks are right twice a analog broken cl clocks are right twice a day. Uh, even even he even kind of got it right when he said, well, uh, it is my responsibility. I am my brother's keeper. He didn't mean it in the proper context. He meant that, well, you know, the government's going to be your brother's keeper and I'm going to be yeah, in charge the of the government. government's going to provide you abortion and birth control. Right. But he, it, it, it just taking the words, I am my brother's keeper, well, you are. And th that is the difference between uh, the, uh, the society that came of age and then produced this magnificent culture that we still long for today. I, I, somebody needs to write a book about this because there really is a longing. Everybody knows that something's wrong. And they mm -hmm. all know that it, at some point in the past, things were more right than they are today. Uh, of course, they have no idea about how right some of the, uh, the epochs in uh, the history of Christendom were. Not that they didn't have their flaws, and that they didn't have their flawed men, and they didn't have mortal sins, and they didn't have non-just wars or any of that, because they did. But they also had that commonality, that solidarity. And uh, there was uh, always, it, it, it would seem, there was always a, uh, a repair of when, when, when something would go uh, bad and it would look like it was going to taint all of Christendom, uh, it would ultimately be put down. And then people would go back to, uh, to living in, in forms of solidarity. I'll give you a good example. The French tried to take advantage, I think it was the French, maybe it was the French or the Portuguese, tried to take advantage of the call for the Holy Fleet. 
when Pope Pius V called for the Holy Fleet to go take on the Mohammedans, some of the countries didn't send uh, boats and were going to take advantage of the fact that the, str the good, the strong men of the other countries had volunteered their men and saw an opportunity to pillage. Of course, I think the, uh, the Holy Ghost prevented them from doing it, and their plans were foiled. And, of course, the Holy Fleet triumphed at, at Lepanto like no Christian Navy or no Navy has ever triumphed before. Um, but that breach there was, uh, was repaired for a little while. Of course, right around the corner was Luther and the gang and then Henry VIII and all that. Brother, we've been rambling, and now we only have 45 seconds to close. Well, hey, I mean, listen to listen to the reconquest afterwards and, and, and get the full picture. <laughs> and uh, tomorrow night, very special uh, evening tomorrow night. Uh, tomorrow afternoon, David Simpson is live from 3 to 5 p.m. Central with a True Money show. And then we'll have two hours of, uh, of Brother Andre's reconquest. And then we'll have the world broadcast premiere of Deliver Us From Evil Tapes, Episode 2, Part 2 of the Amityville Horror. And I'm going to reveal to you something that the world does not know about that event called the Amityville Horror that will shock some. It won't shock others, but it will shock some. For all of us here on the Crusade Channel, for Brother Andre Marie, it's Mike Church saying so long. Have a good evening. May God bless you and Mary keep you. Mm -hmm.